You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 87, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you so much for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and former format through expert analysis. And today I'm doing something a little different. I'm adding some videos, so I'm going to try and take this in one take, which means there'll be kind of strange editing on the podcast. So if you're wondering why there's more stumbling than usual, this is why. So we're going to do this just a little bit differently because I think I want to try and get to some new media platforms. And anyway, we're going to try this out. So today we're going to talk about coronavirus again, which we've been talking about for weeks now, really. I mean, anytime you run a medical podcast, you have to pretty much talk about COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And I think we're going to focus today on how the U.S. government response is and how basically people aren't being very honest. And by that, I mean the CDC, FDA, the president, the governors, uh, I think, you know, the media, either there's, if not dishonesty, there's certainly a lot of misleading statements and maybe just misinformation. And it, maybe it's intentional, maybe it's not. And so we're just going to get to the bottom of what we do know and don't know. And I think I have a, just an honest discussion. And as always on the show, I know people want to sort of fall in one of two camps, especially with the coronavirus. It seems like you want to be in the open everything up or close everything down until we, you know, solve this problem. And if we're going to have to end with the nuanced answer today. And so it's, you know, maybe not going to be satisfying for some people, but I think it's important to really understand what's going on. And I hope that this gives people on both camps and who feel one way or the other. And I know how I feel. I really want to go back to normal and, um, and not live in fear. And I think, you know, hopefully today we kind of get to that point. So let's first talk about what we do and don't know about coronavirus right now. I mean, I think the safe thing to say, we don't know a whole lot. And so that's a, that's probably the most important thing. The things we do know, pretty clearly it's worse than the flu uh, in the sense that we have a death count now in the United States as we're recording this is May 6th, somewhere on the order of 60 to 70,000 Americans. Um, you know, really bad flu season is about 60,000. And we're not even close to being done with this. And I think, you know, this is going to be far longer. And also it's not seasonal like the flu. It doesn't feel like it's going to burn out. And uh, anyway... Without a doubt, it's going to be worse than the flu. When you look at the symptoms and how people have to get higher rates of hospitalizations and how sick they can get, undoubtedly, it's much worse. It's different in that the flu probably affects and is more dangerous for people who are really young, like children. And the coronavirus does not seem to be at all uh, dangerous to children or the super rare instance uh, when you look at the mortality rate. Uh, that just points to how this is different and that it's... Ex- people who are elderly, who are, of course, always more susceptible to lots of things. 
they are certainly much more so with coronavirus. And anyone who has a pre-existing condition or comorbidity, as you oftentimes hear that term used, like diabetes or heart disease, or maybe some problems with respiratory standing, or maybe they have cancer, or there's some sort of immunological problem with their body, uh, they are much more prone to getting sick and uh, succumbing to the disease. Not surprising, uh, but you, it is pretty remarkable the, when you look at the, um, the level of death rates in coronavirus, it is very skewed towards the elderly, uh, which makes them especially you know, vulnerable when they're in, enclosed in the same area like they are in nursing homes. And that's why you see these outbreaks. I think if you look at the Sweden statistics recently, they said I think half of their fatalities were those who are in nursing homes. And so, I mean, it's not, in some ways it's surprising, in some ways it's not. But I think it's important to just note that that's what we, that we do know. Uh, it is also totally no, novel disease. It's something we haven't seen before, so there's no way anyone has any immunity to it, which makes its ability to spread a lot easier than it is for something that people might have seen. Now, that may not be entirely true. We have coronaviruses all the time in our, in the, you know, that are existing. They're the common cold is, you know, uh, there are a number of coronaviruses there. So potentially, maybe some people have some immunity, maybe in, you know, in where they've seen more of it in Southeast Asia. Hard to say. And that's, there's just lots of things that just aren't known at this point. We don't know what sort of genetic things make people less or more susceptible. I mean, clearly some people who are, you think healthy, get really sick with this. And some people seem to be really asymptomatic. In fact, that's the the striking thing about this disease is that there seems to be a large component of people who really don't show any signs of being sick. How well they produce antibodies and those things, we also don't know. Uh, But I think the asymptomatic part is the thing that's really tricky. Because unlike the flu, where you are contagious for maybe a day or so before you actually feel sick, uh, this is a, a much longer incubation period, whatever you want to call it. It's like three to four days. And so for that reason, you can potentially get other people sick and while you're feeling totally normal walking around. Also, if you are truly asymptomatic throughout the entire course of the disease, well, you're going to get people sick the whole time. Now, that also assumes that you have ways of getting people sick. I mean, if you're asymptomatic, you're not sneezing on people. You're not, you know, you don't have a runny nose and things like that. So you're probably less likely to get people sick in that sense. You're not going to be shedding virus and stuff. You may touch your mouth, touch the surface, someone else touches that surface. Potentially there's a sickness there, you know, you kiss someone. <laughs> there's certainly ways you can get people sick. And maybe even just talking, you know, if you're a close talker, <laughs> maybe maybe you can get people sick that way too. We just don't know. And I mean, it's possible that no one gets sick from asymptomatic spread, but it sure seems like when you hear stories of people getting sick uh, who are around people who aren't sick, there must be some sort of asymptomatic spread um, or there are symptoms so mild that people just don't recognize it. Maybe you had a fever and you didn't just didn't notice it, or you had a fever for two hours while you're sleeping, and that was sort of your only symptom. I mean, I guess you could say you had symptoms, but potentially those are the things. Um, I think you know when it looks when you look at the treatment for coronavirus, it has changed and has evolved from when we first recognized it in China. Uh, we know that people aren't in the ICU as long as we thought they were going to be. Um, whether that's bad information from China or just we have better facilities, I'm not sure. Uh, ventilator usage is not as much as we thought, partly because you're not in the ICU and the ventilator as quickly uh, or as long. Potentially, it's just because you declare yourself. And we say that medicine means like, you know, you're not going to get better. We know that right away, pretty soon. And so there's, you know, you're not on the ventilator for, you know, three weeks. It Your body sort of just succumbs pretty quick if you're going to, if you're not going to make it. Um, some people go in ECMO and some people get off. 
our hospitals actually had pretty good success getting people off ventilators. That's not always the case. And so that just probably depends on the patient population, right? If you have a lot of people who are really sick coming, who are elderly, probably doesn't matter, uh, you know, how many ventilators you have, they're probably not going to, going to make it. Um, so that goes to the point that there just aren't, um, but there aren't really obvious treatments. It's not an antibiotic that you can have like with other, you know, bacterial infections. And so the treatment options are not great. I mean, there are medicines that seem to help. There's a lot of controversy on hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, I'm always pronouncing that wrong, uh, some antivirals, but they're not really great. I mean, we don't have anything that we say is like a magic bullet or anything close to it. And so for that reason, it's hard to say that we have great treatments. Uh, we can sort of help the body survive long enough, and, and we're certainly learning some things with that. Uh, maybe with worry about you know, blood clot formations and if you can somehow prevent problems with bleeding. Anyway, I mean, we have gotten some better, but it's not great. And so I think we don't have anything close to a cure. There's no great medicine out there. And I don't think there's anyone on the horizon that's going to happen probably before this whole thing is burns out, but hard to say for sure. There's no shortage of ventilators. Kind of mentioned that before. I, people aren't on ventilators as long as we thought they were going to be. And so when we thought we were going to have this big shortage and, you know, people are trying to gear up and start designing these and building these like, you know, Ford Motor Company and GM, clearly it's just not an issue. And so for that reason, I don't know, it's, it's not something to worry about, which is good because uh, that was definitely something that was a concern. Also, PPE, there is, um, or personal protection equipment, which is a term I'd never even heard before. We never really used that term except I suppose like Jayco meetings or something like that, uh, you know, gowns and masks and gloves. And now of course I have a itchy nose because I'm talking about all this stuff. Uh, there's no shortage of that. Uh, the shortage is pretty much we're, we're caught, reach a steady state in most places and we're catching up. And, um, a lot of the problem, of course, and I, we've talked about this in previous episodes, which you can find at the paradox.com and that's P A R A D O C S. If you've not actually listened to the recordings before. And of course on this YouTube channel, uh, but the, a lot of the problems was due to the regulatory, regulatory hurdles that are set in place by the FDA. So it's not specifically a Donald Trump problem. It's not a, a Barack Obama problem with the administration, but it's really a U.S. federal government problem in that a lot of barriers exist to prevent other people from producing equipment because they want to make sure they can do the proper regulations and have the you know proper stuff in place. The problem, of course, lies in if you have a, a situation where you need it quickly, no one can make the stuff and they, no one has no one to bother. So if you're someone who, let's say you have the ability to make a mask, you're not going to bother making one because you know that the need for it's going to be gone. Prob you're guessing. I mean, in this case, it didn't seem like it'd be that long. So you're guessing it'd probably be over in about six to nine months. Well, the application process and the regulatory process takes far longer than that. And there's no point even applying for this and going through the regulatory hoops. And so the only people who are providing are the people who are providing it before. Also, if you're producing the same mask, and we always, you hear the term N95 and subblocks, a certain size particle, um, those masks we use in industrial purposes all the time. So there are actually, you know, all kinds of industries that use this, but they don't have the special designation of hospital grade. Well, there's not any really difference to it, uh, but it's an extra regulatory burden you have to go through, and so you're not allowed to use those. Well, that, of course, becomes a problem when, when now suddenly you need a lot, and you need it right now. And so we had a lot of these sitting idle in factories and construction places and all those, all those sorts of places that might have a mask, uh, but they were not able to use them the FDA changed the rules and said you can now use those, but it took a long time and it took far longer than it should have. And that's sort of just the clunky regulatory problem that you get with the FDA 
and that causes a lot of uh, a lot of issues with the supply chain made it worse than it had to be i mean people wearing garbage bags and stuff in new york it was really it's atrocious i mean as, for a country as rich as we are to have problems with that uh, supply chain problem because of a lot of the regulatory issues and not allowing other people to produce these things quickly uh, is, is a real travesty. So we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk a little about math. Math is, don't be afraid. This is going to be hopefully fairly simple. You'll hear the term r not, and this will be very important because we're going to talk about the spread of, of viruses and diseases. And you just want to think about how you get people sick. And so we're just going to talk about something real simple. We're going to use easy math because... I like easy math. We're going to start with, you have an idea. Great idea. It's fantastic, in fact. It's revolutionary. And so you go and you tell 10 of your closest friends this news, this new idea you have, let's say, how to live, live longer. And they think it's a great idea. And so the next day, they tell their 10 closest friends, which isn't you, and so on and so forth. Assuming everyone has 10 new friends to tell every time, how fast can this idea spread? Well, within one week, you've, you've reached a million people. Well, that doesn't seem possible, right? You're one guy, you, tell, uh, you have one, a great idea, you tell, just tell 10 people, and they tell 10 people. But this is the, this is the point of exponential growth. So my, I tell one per, 10 people, those people all tell 10, and so now there's 100 people, because all 10 of those told 10 people. And then those 100 tell 10 people, that's 1,000, and then it becomes 10,000, 100,000, and in seven days, it's a million. So when you hear people talk about what is R not, that is essentially saying, how many people when you're sick are you going to get sick? If it's more than one, the growth is going to be exponential. It's going to be it's going to get bigger as time goes on. If it's less than one, if you get less than one people sick, the rate of disease will go down. And there'll be less people getting sick overall over time as long as that R not stays below one. Well, what affects the R not? Well, obviously the nature of the virus, in this case, coronavirus, which we think is between two and two and a half. And I'll have it as an aside, the COVID-19 SIDRAP University of Minnesota, which is the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, put out this nice uh, nice paper that describes sort of these basic things and sort of their findings, which I think very sensible. Uh, that makes sort of explains all this stuff pretty well. And it'll be linked in the show notes page uh, at the paradox.com slash 087. So, R naught is really the amount of infection rate that you're going to you're going to get other people sick. So in this case, if COVID nineteen is an R naught of two, that means that you're going to get two people sick. Those two people get two people sick. So now there are four people sick. Then there'll be eight. Then sixteen, thirty-two, and you know if you can see how that can grow very quickly over just a few days, and that's how these diseases suddenly just explode. Well. R naught is really not that useful in some respects because R naught assumes that no one's been affected, right? And so when you hear the term, you get immunity, what does that mean? Well, it means that if I have immunity to it and you come and you cough on me and you have coronavirus, if I already have antibodies to that, I won't get sick. If, you in a, if you're in a room full of people and they've all had it and they all have antibodies to it, you can't get anyone sick, assuming the antibodies work, right? And so the R naught is not really two. It's now like, Zero, basically. There's nobody left to get sick. And that's along the same lines of the, the first example I gave. I mean, if you go and say, tell your 10 close friends, hey, this is a great idea, and they tell 10 people, well, unless you live in a town of a million people, you're not going to spread your idea to a million people. I mean, unless they have access to that many people, so right, so who haven't heard the idea. But if, they're if a lot of the friends are the same, well, they're kind of telling the same people. And so the R 
the R effective, or RE, is the mathematical term, is much smaller and it decreases over time. So hopefully that makes some sense. So this is the, this is the thought with herd immunity. So you hear the term herd immunity all the time. Well, herd immunity just simply says that if there are more people who have been infected who can't get disease, then the virus can't spread as quickly because there aren't people who it can travel to, right? Because they've already had it and they, they won't get sick again. Well, this is the thing that was all about flattening the curve. And this is where the huge dishonesty comes in the way that lots of physicians talk, lots of people in the media, the government suddenly, and or government officials, politicians, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, the whole strategy for defeating this pandemic was never to prevent people from getting sick. I mean, that's initially what you try and do when you try and contain the virus in it's a small geographic area with only a few people who have it. But at this point, it's all over the world. I mean, there's no way of putting the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, right? And so if that's the case, the only way you're going to, going to get through this is you have to develop immunity for, through, as a community. And that's not necessarily a great thing, but that's just the reality of it. And the whole point of flattening the curve was not to prevent people from getting sick. I mean, in some ways, it's preventing you from getting sick right now. But the expectation is that you will get sick at some point. Now, who will get sick? It depends on how infectious this disease is. And it seems like with this disease, we're going to guess 50, 60, maybe 70% of people are going to have to get this at some point in order to prevent it from spreading too far. So I just want to sink in for a second. The whole point of this is that you will, I mean, chances are pretty good, that you will get the coronavirus and that you will, in fact, get sick. Now, maybe you won't get sick. Maybe you'll be one of those people who are asymptomatic. Maybe you're kind of, you've got all kinds of comorbidities. I mean, this is something that should be scary you because you are certainly at risk for, for dying. Uh, and having contact with someone who is elderly or who has things, they certainly could die too. So as far as everything we know right now, there's a good chance that you will get this and that you will either be sick or not sick, but that, that you will get it at some point. Now, the question is, when do you get it? Do you get it? If we all get it at the same time and we all have a huge rush on the hospital at the same time, it's going to cause huge problems, right? You saw this in Italy. You've seen it in, in New York. Although I would say in New York, as bad as it was, it wasn't like they had no hospital beds. They didn't have, they, they lacked lots of the, the gowns and they weren't ready with that, with all that equipment. But as far as hospital beds and those sorts of things, they sort of had enough. They had enough ventilators. They never ran out of these things. Um, it was terrible as far as the amount of deaths. I mean, there's no question. A lot of people died from the coronavirus. Um, and so anyone I you know, says that's not true is, I think you just, you're not, you're not wanting it to be true. And I understand because I feel the same way. I really don't want my way of life changing. Uh, but the reality is the coronavirus is here and that it's going to change things for a little while, at least the way we think about things. And so we have to get the coronavirus. We're just going to have to get it at some point. Most people. I think if you're in healthcare, you're super susceptible because you're going to be dealing with people who obviously are more likely to be sick coming in the hospital, right? And they're more likely to have coronavirus. And so you're going to be at high risk for getting this. Um, and so, you know, protect yourself and try and prevent it get it, all getting it at the same time. But the flattening curve was just to shift out so that we all get it eventually, but over time. So what does time buy you? Well, time buys you a chance to maybe find a miracle cure. Maybe it finds... Uh, better treatment options, which we've certainly learned some things over time. And so the time has been helpful and to build up your supplies, whether that's the personal protection equipment, 
um, or medications, hospital beds and the ventilators and things like that. So those things have been helpful for us at the time. But again, you know, you still have to get it. And if you slow it down a ton, meaning you have hardly anybody getting it, but you, it's still present in the community, which uh, it's be very difficult to try and eliminate from the community. Because even if you got out of your community, you have to get out of every community in the country, for instance, and internationally. I mean, it's really almost impossible. Uh, so if that's, if that's the case, then kind of everybody has to get it at some point. You sort of want to always have the healthcare system in some ways be stressed a little bit in order to get that herd immunity high enough. Because once the herd immunity gets to a certain level, it's going to stop these outbreaks. And, and then we're not going to have that exponential growth. We're going to be able to manage the, the, the spread of the virus. And, you know, hopefully at that point, um, we won't have as many problems. Now, possibly there's a vaccine, right? And so this is, so this is the one question. If we get a vaccine, maybe we just hold out for the vaccine. I think it's probably unlikely that it's going to happen anytime soon because not only do you have to produce a vaccine that works, you have to try it, make sure that's not, it doesn't have any um, ill effects. And certainly some vaccines they've tried for coronavirus in the past. It sounds like they've actually made you more susceptible to problems with the coronavirus. And so you certainly wouldn't want that. Uh, and even if you do, then you have to produce tens or hundreds of millions of doses because you're going to have to treat, you know, most of the world, at least initially the Western world or whatever, but it's going to be a lot of doses of, of vaccines. Now that obviously would lower that R naught or that RE. And so then the more people who've had it, who have immunity to it through either a vaccine or having caught the disease would then of course be, would make it less spread less well. And so that's what you hope for, but probably getting to a vaccine is going to be some time. And so I think, you know, we're looking at, I mean, until next year, pretty much the only way we're going to get immunity from this is by actually getting the coronavirus. And again, that's just the reality of it. We can try and hold out, but the question then is, is well, as we'll discuss later, is you know what is the cost for that? And how, how can you actually effectively do that? So let's talk about mitigation techniques. You've heard, you've heard mitigation, the term. It just basically means how do you prevent the spread and what sort of techniques can you do that work? Well, initially, and this is another part of the misinformation from uh, the government and from the CDC. I mean, it was where they were saying, don't use masks. And then they said, use masks. And it was sort of like, I think it was, they pretty much knew that it probably would help because they certainly made sure all the healthcare workers had masks and that they wanted to try to prioritize that we had the masks, which is great. I mean, we're the, have the highest you know, risk for, for contracting coronavirus because we're exposed to it. However, it would it, they could have just said, we want to prioritize and make sure healthcare workers and frontline workers have the masks. And then if you want to make your own or whatever, that's probably a good strategy rather than having, you know, private citizens buy up giant, you know, boxes of masks. I think people would have probably been okay with that. I think, I don't, I mean, some people would have certainly gone out and bought a lot of masks and stuff, but for the most part, I think people would have been pretty reasonable about this. And we probably could have stopped a lot of the spread initially. It's my guess. Don't know. We can never know. You can never prove the negative, And so we'll never know for sure. Um, so what are the mitigation techniques? One is obviously masks. And so if you have a mask, you're probably not protecting yourself much, but you're protecting others. So if you are in that asymptomatic, which we assume that you are contagious at some point, and so you might be sick, not know it, and you could potentially spread it. So if you have a mask, it's going to cut down about 70% or so, we're guessing, depends on the quality of the mask, of transmission of the, um, the virus. And so potentially that would help. Uh, it's going to slow this speed. It won't stop it to go down to zero. There'll still be some spread of the disease, but hopefully it would be a lot slower. And so that, that R that we talk about 
would be less than one. As long as it's less than one, we're not going to have a huge spike exponential growth and just, you know, crash in the healthcare system. People continue getting sick, but not all at once. And again, that's the goal. Now, you can also do social distancing. I mean, that seems quite obvious. If I'm alone in the woods, I can't get anyone sick, right? If I, you know, a thousand feet from you, I can't get you sick. And so the more you avoid other people and talking, getting close proximity, close talkers, all that sort of thing, uh, the less likely people are going to get um, sick and the less spread will be. So just that alone would, you know, obviously reduce the, the spread and that would help. Controversial, but probably shouting and singing probably raises the distance that you have to be from someone to aerosolize things. And so there is some question about that. And that's something that, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's not something that makes me happy. Anyone who listened to my podcast knows at the end of my po- every podcast, I have my son, my late son, who passed away in a car accident in August of 2018, um, he's singing a solo in the, the Grand Rapids Choir Men and Boys. And so singing is a big part of our life. Um, I can't sing. That's <laughs> in my family. But uh, my boys are amazing. My wife's very good. I mean, the whole family is really good singing except me. And so music is important. And so uh, it's hard to imagine a world where that doesn't exist <clears throat> for even a little while. Uh, but maybe that's something that we have to think about. I, again, I'm not saying what has to be done, but I think these are these are things that we know somewhat about mitigation. Obviously, if you cong- um, congregate in large groups, that would be a problem as well. Um, you know, social distancing, right? You have to stay distant, large distance from people. Well, suddenly you're, you know, 300 people in a tiny room. If someone's sick, the chance of spreading is much easier. And you've seen that in super spreader um, events in South Korea, like at funerals, some guy attended a couple of funerals and got just tons of people sick. When it comes to school, it's possible that schools may be a breeding ground too for, um, <clears throat> for spreading it between families, right? So the kids get sick, they go to school. Now, kids are probably going to be asymptomatic, so it's hard to know. Are they just going to get and not really spread it much? Or are they just, they're probably going to be okay, which is actually kind of nice that you don't have to worry too much about the kids getting too sick. Um, they do end up in the PICU, and you will read stories and accounts on Twitter and Facebook of the disasters or whatever happened, but they almost all get better. I mean, it's it's very unusual for, for, for kids to have, um, to get super sick with this. And so... I tend not to worry about that as much. And so these are things, you know, think about protecting the elderly. Obviously, if you're someone who's susceptible and who's at risk, you need to try and avoid contact with people who could potentially get you sick. And so trying to protect the elderly, who takes care of the elderly people who are younger, who are more likely out and about in the community, they can bring it into the nursing home. And then you've got a, a sort of a, a population that's highly at risk there, you know, it's like a breeding ground for these things. And so you've seen some nursing homes really get hit badly. And so this makes you question, I guess, you know, whether nursing homes are a good thing. I mean, I guess these are all, you know, questions we can ask ourselves. Uh, the other thing we'll talk about briefly is vaccines. When you look at vaccines, again, we've never had one successfully produced for a coronavirus. Researchers think they might have it or everybody's working on it. So the chance of getting one, I think it's pretty high that we'll get one. Whether it works real well, hard to know. And we probably won't know for a while. Um, but if we get one, it's also a possibility of mutations. And so you'll see that um, with, uh, with like, uh, there's a different strain on the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States, it seems like right now as we speak. They seem to be equal, like, lethality. Uh, whether a vaccine would work for both of them, 
hard to say, but it seems like more the, I guess the the virus that people got in Asia is the one that came over to the West Coast and then the East Coast sort of got something that came from Europe, which is a different strain. Um, there've been a bunch of mutations, a lot of them are tiny, but how much that matters and how effective it makes a vaccine and how it affects herd immunity overall, right? Like if you get really bad, sick with, the, with one strain of the coronavirus, are you protected from the other? All things we have no idea of knowing. Then let's talk about what we've been doing because I think this is probably the most important part of this discussion. We look at the mitigation techniques right now, and it's sort of a pell-mell, you know, willy-nilly. We have no plans. We have no data. And we've talked about this before in the show. Uh, we don't have any science or any sort of any sort of reason behind a lot of these things. I mean, you look at Michigan, which is one of the most dr- draconian states and where I live, and we had rules where you could go to a store, you could you know, go to, you couldn't buy paint if it's store sold groceries, but if you went to a paint store, you could buy paint. You know, it didn't make any sense. Uh, you could you couldn't drive between two properties in, that in the state, uh, but you know you could, you could be out of state and drive into your property in the state, and that's okay. How much viruses spread by going to gas station occasionally, especially with so little going on, it's hard to know that. It's hard to understand why it actually makes that much of a difference. Like you go on a boat, not without a boat, not without a motor, but you go with a boat. Uh, so you could do a kayak, but you can go in a speedboat. I mean, there's sort of like crazy sort of rules and they were, they didn't have any sort of, there was no sort of rhyme or reason to why they were existing. Uh, we had stores were not allowed. If you were sold groceries, you're not allowed to sell or have advertising for things that are not groceries. It was this kind of just random. Those kind of measures are all over the place. Uh, and I think it's partly because the, we've drifted from well, we just flattening the curve to suddenly we're just trying to eliminate the disease. And I just don't think that's something that's feasible and reasonable. And so we can't live in fear and we can't like, we just have to be kind of sensible about things. So I don't know. And I don't know how much this affects other things. Clearly um, with these mitigation techniques, the stay at home orders, uh, it's caused massive problems with their economy. And, you know, you may say, well, it's just money doesn't matter because lives are all that matters. And people might've gotten sick anyway. And that's true. They would might've gotten sick and they've been pulled out of the economy as well. But closing down everything and putting 30 million people or so now uh, unemployed off, it's hard to really justify that, I think, in some ways, especially when you don't know that what you're doing makes any difference at all. Like, could you have done other things that would have worked? People always point to Sweden, and Sweden certainly has a different approach to controlling it. They they sort of have more of a recognition that people are going to get sick to try and protect the elderly in the nursing homes, which they did not do a great job at, uh, which they admit, but they admitted recently. Uh, But that they kept most things open, but had various rules, like no large gatherings and some sort of like sensible kind of trying to prevent it from getting crazy. Right. But recognizing that this disease is not like the black plague. It's not going to kill a third of people who get it. It's going to kill a relatively small percentage, but it will kill them. And so they will get it. And there's just no way around that um, because you can't get rid of this disease. So you just have to accept the fact that you want to just Make sure that you have the ideal circumstances for everybody to have a chance to survive, and so, which means you don't want to have a hospital that doesn't have any beds or ventilators or you know equipment. And so you want to try and minimize everyone coming at once, but it will mean that people will succumb to the disease, and you've seen that already of, again, 60,000, 70,000 people already. Um, and, uh, and the other part that I think is really not known, that's not really taken account, aside from the domestic abuse with people who stay at home, uh, limited social interactions causing significant psychiatric problems. And um, it's just not 
it's not good psychologically for most people to be socially isolated. Uh, I think also, and speaking of someone who's sort of going through the grieving process after losing my son, people talking about death and sort of uh, locking everybody in their house, it doesn't really help that process either. It's actually really kind of rough. And so I can only imagine other people who might have gone through something or have anxiety disorder or whatever, that they're much worse off. And I talked to my a friend who has a counselor anecdotally, I mean, a lot worse as far as anxiety and these issues. So those are real things and that's real suffering that occurs from this. That's not even taking account to the fact that, you know, businesses are closing, people might be losing their jobs forever uh, because we're entering recession. Um, and the question is, you know, this, the cure that we've used, is that, was it appropriate? I, I think probably it was, it was probably not. There are probably other things we could have done uh, had we been more honest with this pop, the, the public initially that, you know, what our strategies were that, yes, you're going to get sick. We don't know what's going to happen if you get sick. We guess it's not most that most people survive. Um, but we don't know. Uh, it, certainly from our experience looking elsewhere, it probably was like less than 1% who actually end up dying from disease. I mean, it's still a large percentage of people, uh, but we just buy ourselves some time. But is the cure worth it? Because if you make yourself poor and cause all kinds of economic, social, political strife, I think you're actually probably worse off and you may have more deaths. Additionally, you have people who are not going to the hospital because they hear these media reports of you know, what's going on in New York or what's going on in Detroit. They automatically assume that's where it is everywhere. And it's just not. And so this is, a, this is a real problem because people have other conditions. They have, say, a heart attack. They have chest pain. They're having a stroke. They have a weird lump and they don't want to get it checked out because, you know, don't want to go to the doctor because you know, might get sick there with coronavirus. Well, that's a real problem because these people are dying at higher rates too. Uh, you see like all deaths are going up and it's potentially people dying of coronavirus at home that they're making to the hospital, but there's probably people dying of other things. Um, outside of trauma. Trauma is certainly down because people just aren't moving around as much and so there's less traumatic deaths. So there's all kinds of other things that you can't just focus entirely on one thing. This is why you don't want to just have an infectious disease physician or an epidemiologist running, making decisions because they're going to make decisions based on the one thing that they're focused on, not everything. And so it's important that you have focused on everything because they all matter. How you weigh them, well, that's why you know, you're here in that job to try and figure that out. Um, so, how, so what would you do to, to try and fix this? Well, first of all, I think the honest thing is, again, 50 to 60% of us are going to get coronavirus. Now, maybe we'll get a vaccine before we get it, uh, if it comes real fast, but we're looking at probably about two years of this of this virus being sort of a kind of an issue. And so what do we do? I mean, in, in the meantime, because you're going to get it, uh, probably. And if you are, you're probably going to survive, uh, but you're going to maybe get other people sick. And so... How do we prevent it from going crazy where everyone gets sick all at the same time? And that's really what we want to do. And so that's, and that comes down to probably social distancing or wearing masks or things like that. Uh, we don't really know what works best. And, you know, that's, we probably know a little bit more after looking at some of the initial countries and what their responses are and what they're, what they've done. So hopefully, hopefully we'll have a, we'll have a better feel for what's the best strategy, but probably just one of those two things would be adequate is my guess. Now, the gathering sizes probably changes and shifts. And I think this is where you don't want to, you don't want the federal government setting the mandate or the standards. I don't think you really want a state government setting these standards. I think you want the state government providing information of what's going on in different parts of the state. But I think it's important that every community and however you want to structure it, whether it's the city or whether it's a county or just a collection of counties that are in a certain region, but they sort of make a decision together, like saying, hey, 
nothing's happening right now. We've got no disease. Let's kind of open stuff up most of the way. Uh, or just say, we're going to have everyone wear masks and everyone just sort of, or everyone try and social distance themselves. If you're out in rural, like, you know, middle of nowhere in, in Alaska or something, you don't need to have a mask, right? Uh, you know, you're out about outside, you don't need to wear masks and things like that. You just need to you know, not you know, make out with some random stranger, right? So uh, we just need to be sensible about these things and have the local communities who know exactly what's going on keep track of these things and just kind of, and, and with increased testing that we're going to get now too, it's going to make it a lot easier for these communities to sort of determine when they're having an outbreak. And as soon as something starts happening, they say, hey, everybody in city X, there seems to be a lot more of this coronavirus. It's time to do something about it. So let's decrease the amount of gathering. Uh, instead of having gathering groups of 500 or whatever, we're going to go down to 50 or maybe 10 or something like that. These are recommendations. We can't force people to do it. I think it's foolish to say to have actually like police out arresting people because that defeats the purpose of spreading the disease. I mean, you're, you're basically having a bunch of people like tackle someone or, or haul someone away for something. And then you're going to put them in a prison where that some of those, that's some of the worst places to put people in, in confined spaces. So uh, this should all be mostly voluntary and it should be, I think most store people, store owners, most people are going to abide by these things. There are people who won't, but for the most people, people are going to be okay with that. Um, and you know, if you're someone who's had the disease, you're, probably won't get it again and so you're you're probably more free to move about the, the community and also if you're young it's probably it makes more sense for you to be out and about anyway because although you may spread it and so you have to be mindful of who you're having contact with you're also probably gonna be fine if you get it in fact almost for sure you're gonna be fine now not everybody you'll hear the story about the person who isn't fine i totally understand that but recognize that people are going to get this. There's just no way you're around us getting coronavirus. I expect fully at some point that I will get it. I don't want to. I'll do what I can to avoid getting it. I mean, I would hope anyone with sense would try and stop from getting getting sick. But it might. It but it probably will happen, or there's a good chance. I mean, I get colds occasionally. I'd like to think I don't generally get that sick. But I've had the flu a number of times. I don't like it. I tried to get the flu shot to to avoid that. Anyway, so. Uh, we just need to be sensible about that, allow local communities to make these decisions and put up the you know, warning flares. And, and then people just say, oh, I'm just not going to go to the restaurant or I will, you know, or the restaurant is like, okay, we're just going to have a limited capacity for a couple weeks. We're going to get this thing under control. Less people get in the hospital. The hospital's not strained as much. Then we can go back to sort of normal business or whatever that might be. Now, does this mean you're going to be wearing masks potentially for a year or two? Maybe. It's not the worst thing in the world. It's not great. I hate masks. I wear them all day to work. I don't really want to walk around in stores with a mask on. You can get cooler masks. You know, there's like patterns and stuff. I, if the difference, if you don't wear a mask and suddenly there's a massive outbreak and, you know, we have tens of thousands of extra people dying all at once because there aren't enough resources, well, that doesn't really help anybody either. Uh, so I think, you know, again, I think we have to be sensible about this thing. Maybe we can go to, uh, you know, I, I think about like what I do in life and what I would miss. And so I think it'd be great if we could still do the singing. I don't know how you do it. Maybe you have a big screen up or something like a plexiglass. And you can still sing and I, I don't know. But I think those, I think things could be sort of done. Um, and like, let's say it's a large sporting event. Could you potentially have a large sporting event where you just say, you know, clap, stomp your feet, do whatever and try to scream and yell as much. You can wear and everyone wears masks. You probably can avoid big problems. I don't know. I mean, I just, I, there, I think there are ways we could do this sensibly. 
uh, and that would be the decision of those teams and the the schools and the and you don't you don't just need the, you really just need the government to sort of provide the data and say you know this is a this is a problem right now, or it's not a problem, and hopefully people make the right decision. I think you know when you looked at the initial response to coronavirus, it wasn't the government shutting everything down. If you recall, it was really private actors who were doing all the initial initial work, and that was that included you know professional sports teams, uh, the NCA. Uh, Big Ten, and I specifically mentioned Big Ten because I was at the Big Ten basketball tournament and missed it because, of course, the whole coronavirus hit right at that time, which was very disappointing, but, you know, it's life. Uh, this will end at some point. Uh, it will change things for a little bit. I think, you know, I think the greater damage probably is the fact that we've shut things down and done everything all at once uh, without any sort of without any sort of idea what our endpoints were. And that's what we really need to focus on. I think we need to keep track of what is the R naught, what is that spread rate in local communities, not just with states, but with like as sort of granular as you can get to like local communities. And like that's what the health department should do, or if they need help, they can get it from the state perhaps. And the state can get assistance from the federal government. You know, that might be the sort of the use for it. Uh, but that's really what should be done in order to have good, sound decisions. And, you know, it's just like, um, it's a good example would be like a smog day or something like that. You know, the, we know what the temperature is going to be and it's going to be super humid and, you know, trying to mow your lawn today. Well, they're not out there like arresting people for running, for running the lawnmower. They're not out there, you know, telling people to get off the roads, out their cars. It's just a general sort of, you know, call to arms to say, hey, try and avoid doing certain things today because it's going to be extra bad if, if you don't. Uh, that's, I think, what it would be like. And so you say, hey, we've got a couple of weeks where we're just going to have to kind of slow things down a little bit it's going to be disruptive and it's going to kind of suck. And it, if you're in the healthcare industry, it's going to be pretty terrible for a while. I think it's this, you know, what I have to actually wear as far as protective equipment, I'm going to be stuck with that for a while now. Um, so anyway, I think that's probably where we'll end up. I, I hope so. I mean, that's the sensible solution. The, the one that's unworkable is for a free people. I mean, we're not going to like weld people into the rooms like they can do in China. Uh, we have we expect to move around and do things and you know we have hopes and dreams and desires and things we want to do see people and to expect that you can lock people up for for 18 months or something is is totally insane i mean there's just no way it can happen the way we're prosperous is because we produce stuff and things and perform things of value to people whether that's you know legal services electrician whatever uh, or you're making things or farming uh, you have to that's how we're rich it's not we're not rich because some you know someone prints a bunch of money and gives it to you that's a temporizing measure but it's not going to be something that's going to solve problems long term and so we have to get everyone back to sort of some semblance of normalcy and probably it's going to be spits and spurts all through um throughout the country for a while as we sort of figure that thing out but and without that it this is going to fall apart in a hurry <laughs> and and so i i I know that it means that things will probably change a little bit. And uh, when I initially was sort of thinking about this through, it seemed really depressing. It's like, there's all these things I can imagine not happening. And I thought, well, you know, there are probably ways that we can sort of sensibly, again, like maybe we can attend sporting events, but not cheer as loud or just, you know, just, or maybe they don't have concessions. So you keep your mask on all the time. I, I don't know. I mean, it would kind of suck, uh, but it'd be a lot better than not having them. And if you say, well, we're not, we're going to pretend it's not a problem. Well, I think then you're going you're gonna to regret that decision. And to that point real quickly, uh, when you look at the fatality rates, uh, if it's, let's say, the, let's say the, um, if you get coronavirus and you have a, all comers, and this is people from you know, zero to 
100, you know, 100 years old or whatever. And they, the fatality rate is like 0.1. Well, there's 360 million people in this country, I think. And so if you had a 0.1% fatality rate, uh, that'd be 180,000 people who die from the coronavirus. Now, that's over the span of however many, you know, however long this sort of thing is around, guessing like two years or so until you reach that herd immunity where it becomes really kind of a no different than other things that are sort of people are dying of. Um, but if it's 0.2%, now you've got 360 million uh, if, or 360,000. And if suddenly it's like 0.7%, which you hear people talk about all the time, well, now you're talking about 1.3 million people. That's a lot of people. Um, now you can say they're old people. And I, every, <laughs> every life has value and dignity, I think. And so it's not something we should, we should just minimize. But it's something we should recognize, too, that you've got to live your life and you have to exist. These things have happened before, pandemics, and we sort of live through them. And we just get through them. And then eventually it's over. I would say it's a personal plea to those who um, don't normally get the flu shot or some vaccine. Uh, this would, if there's ever a year, maybe even two, to get it, this would be the time to get it because um, you're going to have a situation where it's going to be very difficult for people uh, if you have the flu on top of coronavirus that's still going to be in, in the community and they're having flares from, you know, at random times. Uh, it's going to be really stressful on the healthcare system. And so it's going to be really hard for people to get care sometimes. And so if you can, even though you won't die from the flu most of the time, again, you know, you're probably going to be fine. You're going to feel terrible, but you'll be okay. Uh, you not getting the flu means you can't spread it. And so if you get the flu vaccine, you're going to prevent probably someone else, you know, maybe the person in the nursing home who would have gotten the flu on top of, you know, coronavirus or something. And so it will help <clears throat> the, the spread. And even if oftentimes a flu vaccine, they have to have different strains. And so they have to guess which ones are going to be the most uh, prevalent when it comes to this country. So that's why the flu vaccine sometimes works. It doesn't work for certain people. It usually gives you some partial immunity. So even if you get the flu, you're not quite as sick. And that's happened to me a couple of times. Um, but it's important, I think, to get the flu vaccine this, this fall as soon as it comes out, because um, you, the last thing you want to do is spread the flu, which we know spreads, uh, and does kill tens of thousands of people every year. But if we could keep that really low this year and then just have to just deal with the coronavirus, it'd make it a lot easier for everybody to make sure that we that the people who do get the coronavirus, which again, it's probably, you know, half of you watching this video right now or listening on to the podcast, uh, you at least have the best chance of surviving and to get through that okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed the talk and discussion send uh, emails if you have any questions to the paradox show that's p-r-a-d-o-c-s s-h-o-w at protonmail.com you can visit this at the paradox.com slash 087 uh, the show notes again for the the study i mentioned a couple links to the uh, past episodes we talked about the coronavirus will be there you know, there's a link there to patreon if you want to contribute to the show and um and i appreciate any comments you have again i don't it's a nuanced thing i i know um I value personally uh, my freedom and the ability to do what I want. And um, I don't like having things restricting uh, my movement or, or what I like to do. Uh, but I think, you know, we have to recognize in the interest of our fellow man uh, that we maybe do things a little bit differently, but not totally change the fabric of our society. And so I think, I think we can do that. I think, you know, if, if the worst that happened is you had to wear a mask or not be close to people, like, you know, out and about. That's not the end of the world. It's something that's doable. And, um, you know, maybe we can just get through this okay. 
And again, if we can get to the point where maybe we just wear masks and still can go to large events as long as we don't go crazy there uh, and don't cause any massive spikes in, um, like you saw like after Mardi Gras, for instance, in, in New Orleans, uh, you know, maybe then we can get by okay and it, and we'll get through this all right and either we get to a vaccine or we get enough herd immunity. My hope, and it's one thing we didn't talk about much, is that far greater people, num- greater number of people have gotten this than, than we think. I think there's no question with the asymptomatic portion. But even so, uh, the the levels of of um, immunity are much lower than we need at this point. And so we still have a ways to go. I mean, do we reach that in a year? Maybe. If, that, if so, that'd be great. Uh, maybe we'll reach even sooner than that. But until then, until we really feel confident that, that we've got the human, herd immunity, we have to be just sensible and just be, you know, be brotherly to our, to our other neighbor, to our neighbors and people we don't know. And so I think that's a reasonable um, compromise that we can do. And we don't need really lots of government force to, for, to, to force that. We can just say, if your business, Hey, you have to mass you come in here. If you don't like it, you go somewhere else, whatever. But uh, just let the businesses decide what the level of risk they want, what kind of patrons they want. And, I'm guessing most people make the decision that it's going to that will make sense for their community. Uh, I know some people don't trust people, and I understand because there are people who are not to be trusted. <laughs> but for the most part, I think people make the right decision, and that's how our society is sort of run. So, again, thank you so much, this is Dr. Eric Larson from the Paradox. Thanks for listening, and tune in hopefully next week or maybe the week after, and we'll get some other important guests on. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.